This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde questions why on earth Conservative MPs are refusing to wield the axe to Johnson and are instead opting for the pooper scooper. Michelle Kambasha analyzes Lena Dunham's divisive sitcom Girls, 10 years on from its debut. Emma Brock sits down with actress Sienna Miller to discuss family, her career, and the toxic tabloid press culture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Of the early 2000s. And finally, Adrian Horton reacts to new Netflix documentary, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie & Fitch, and explores how the American fashion giant built an empire on discrimination. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, as Boris Johnson marked his 1,000th day as Prime Minister this week, he was forced to address the House of Commons and recognise police fines issued to him for breaking his own lockdown laws. A handful of Tory backbenchers have called for the PM's resignation, but it seems the majority in the party are, yet again, going to stand by their hapless leader, at least until the local election results are in. Marina Hyde asks for how long and for what possible reason the Tory government would continue to stand by Boris Johnson. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Defending the indefensible Prime Minister over pandemic law-breaking, one Conservative MP sniffed to the Financial Times, it's not as if he walked into a rave in Ibiza. I mean, all the clubs in Ibiza were dutifully shut, what with it being a pandemic? But yes, encouraging that amnesia holds itself to a higher standard than number 10. Tuesday marked 1,000 days of Boris Johnson's premiership, and you have to agree, he has truly delivered on his flagship levelling down agenda. 
Johnson drags everyone to the bottom. In the afternoon on this totemic day, the Prime Minister will be forced to stand up in the House of Commons, or the Bollocksium, as his behaviour repeatedly casts it. Here, in the course of spouting some more utter cobblers, he will acknowledge that he has been fined by the police for breaking a law that he had not only made himself, but explained the absolutely vital importance of sticking to every night on TV. Meanwhile, a load of Tory MPs will gibber their way across the airways to explain that this is no biggie. With the exception of those few backbenchers to have called for the Prime Minister's resignation, the hardest line you'll hear from any other Conservative Member of Parliament is that they are waiting to see the local election results. To which the only possible retort is, why? Why do you need to wait for the public to tell you right from wrong? Don't you think the public might be a bit busy with matters such as the cost of living crisis to have to explain the absolute basics to a bunch of betas, whose job is supposed to include having a clue? Honestly, if you can't work out that it is beyond a piss-take for the Prime Minister to make draconian new laws, then break them himself, it does feel like your public service mechanism is completely shot. Unfortunately, there's a lot of it about. People break out the term gaslit for everything these days, but this is an occasion where it fits the bill. Contrary to what Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis claimed this week, this is not like a parking fine, unless we've all forgotten the bit where the government cleared the broadcast schedules at 5pm every night to impress on the British people the life-or-death importance of not breaking parking regulations. Last weekend, it was reported that Johnson himself had kicked off his adviser Lee Kane's leaving due by pouring the drinks. Picking back through the archives, it wasn't so long after this event that HM government unveiled a hard-hitting new ad campaign, one image of which showed a woman being given oxygen as she stared accusingly into the camera. The caption, Look her in the eyes and tell her you never bend the rules. What can you say to those defending the government not just bending the rules but breaking the law? Look us in the eyes and tell us you didn't tell us to look her in the eyes. Even the cake-assisted birthday gathering in the cabinet room, for which Johnson has already been penalised by the Metropolitan Police, came not long after he had tweeted a letter, in which he explained to a seven-year-old girl that she was right to cancel her birthday party. As the PM piously instructed the public in the attendant hashtag, be like Josephine. As has now been revealed, he himself continued to hashtag be like Boris. Speaking of stuff that seven-year-olds have grown out of, we know that Johnson is a big fan of The Lion King recently quoting the movie's Change is Good line when several of his closest number 10 staff walked out on him. Put simply, the Conservatives hanging on to Johnson now is like the entire Pride hearing what Scar did, but keeping him in post anyway. 
Weirdly, that wasn't the plot structure Disney went with in the end, and they know a thing or two about popular narratives. Incidentally, any MPs who react to this analogy by inquiring rhetorically, then who and where is Simba, merely make matters worse. Just go the whole hog and run the local election campaign under the slogan, There is no Simba. This is it. MPs who can't wait to tell you Boris always brings the house down haven't yet realised that they'll get buried in the rubble. You don't need to be an esteemed political historian to work out that politicians defending prime ministerial law-breaking will be doing something devastating and long-term to trust in the whole of politics. Then again, it does help to be one. On Sunday, the distinguished constitutional sage Peter Hennessy, not exactly given to intemperate public statements, declared of Johnson's failure to resign for breaking the actual law, I think we're in the most severe constitutional crisis involving a prime minister that I can remember. Describing Johnson as a rogue prime minister unworthy of the Queen, Hennessy went on to judge him the great debaser in modern times of decency in public and political life and of our constitutional conventions, our very system of government. As his diary entry for the day Johnson's police penalty was revealed reads, I cannot remember a day when I have been more fearful for the well-being of the Constitution. Well, give it till the next fine drops. There'll be another black day along soon enough. And that's, arguably, the most genuinely polaxing bit of the whole story. The Prime Minister's defenders have still failed to grasp one of the most essential truths of Johnson's lifelong practice of behaving badly, then lying about it. That there is always always more to come. Being dismissive about cake in the cabinet room is very obviously going to leave you hostage to fortune if it turns out that Johnson is fined for more serious law-breaking down the line. Yet his allies are currently sticking to variations of it, a defence which basically amounts to, hey, that birthday party was the least criminal thing he did. By the time we get to the fallout over who did or didn't pour the first vat of wine at Kano's leaving do, Johnson will be forced into some truly batshit contortions. Are you familiar with Sovereign Citizens, a new breed of conspiracy wingnut who argue that actually they can opt out of laws which they don't think should apply to them? No? Then do make sure to bone up on them, because you're governed by one. In the meantime, consider the sheer amount of time that an entire government and parliamentary party currently appears willing to spend cleaning up after one man. Did they really get into politics to do this? Are they really waiting until the public tells them to stop? It certainly looks like it. Even at this late stage in the game, Conservative MPs remain too wet to wield the knife, preferring, instead, to grasp the pooper scooper. That was Seriously Tory Party, There Is No Pooper Scooper Big Enough to Clear Up Johnson's Constant Mess by Marina Hyde 
Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, Lena Dunham's sitcom Girls premiered a decade ago. At the time, it was praised for its wit and honesty in its, at times, harsh portrayal of white middle-class millennial women growing up in New York. While some viewers praised the show's refreshing approach to situational comedy, others criticised its obvious and questionable lack of diversity within the cast. Michelle Kambasha explores whether the iconic US series is an example of groundbreaking brilliance or an offensive display of white privilege. Read by Tegan Byrne. Why is everyone struggling in New York? Hannah Horvath asks in season one of HBO's coming-of-age comedy drama, Girls. Back in 2012, it was a question that, to fans and the many journalists who gave the show rave reviews, felt very fresh. Lena Dunham's look at the trials and tribulations that come with adulthood in The Big Apple, which launched ten years ago today, wasn't the first of its kind. But while shows such as Sex and the City and its all-black counterpart, Girlfriends, had explored similar ground ten years earlier, there was something about girls that felt different. If Sex and the City is the celebration of a post-19s feminism that celebrates money, consumption, sex and over-the-top femininity, girls is the rejection of that, says Jory Lagerway, professor of English, drama and film at University College Dublin and author of Horrible White People, Gender, Genre and Television's Precarious Whiteness. It was an unflinching portrayal of millennial life that sought to uncover what lay beneath the veneer of the American dream. The recession of 2008 betrayed a generation of people and so, where Carrie Bradshaw masked her romantic issues with copious cocktails and $500 Manolo Blahniks, Dunham chose a more radical approach by foregoing masks altogether. It embraced the warts and all truths of a specific generation of women. In the opening episode, we saw Dunham's character of Hannah, a budding writer in between unpaid internships, on the point of getting cut off from her parents, despite believing herself to be the voice of a generation. It's one of the many pieces of whip-smart cringe comedy, delusions of grandeur and intensity that litter the show. You aren't supposed to like these ladies, but you are supposed to see the worst parts of you in them. After years of only men being allowed to be flawed, churlish protagonists, Tony Soprano and Walter White spring to mind, having four girls in this realm felt revolutionary. It was a watershed moment, says Lagerway. Women got to be gross, unlikable and miserable and mean to each other. Or at least a very specific demographic of women did. One of the key objections that came to be levelled at girls is that Dunham's New York was essentially monoethnic save for a few black and brown people who played bit roles as service industry workers. Where white women felt seen, other women found the show uncomfortably blinkered. As people explored Dunham's career, they found that she was the child of well-connected members of New York's liberal elite, artists Laurie Simmons and Carol Dunham, and came to see the show's story as one of privilege, wealth and nepotism. I remember being very angry, says Zebra Blay, author of Carefree Black Girls. So angry, she even started a podcast to address it. She wasn't alone. There was a growing prominent chorus of women of colour who went on Twitter to air their grievances of being ignored and overlooked. 
This provoked heated reactions from those who championed the show as a revolutionary force for alternative present-day white feminism. Liz Arfin, a writer on the first season of the show, sarcastically tweeted, but has since deleted the post, What really bothered me about the movie Precious was that there was no representation of me. One infamous Twitter spat involved Caitlin Moran. Did you address the complete and utter lack of people of colour in girls in your interview? I sure hope so, said one tweeter to Moran, who had interviewed Durham. Nope, and I couldn't give a shit about it, she replied in a tweet that has also been deleted. One of the things that worked against girls was its timing, given that it came after a precarious time for race relations. It aired two months after the murder of Trayvon Martin in February of that year, a tragedy that brought racial tensions in the US into sharper focus, leading to an increase in people exploring how whiteness presented in all aspects of life. In that context, girls felt to some like an unabashed display of white privilege that was too much to stomach. As a result, it became one of the first intellectual playgrounds of cultural criticism of its kind. As Lagerwey points out, 2012 was the beginning of serious discussions about visibility and intersectionality. To look back on the show is to be confronted by an important time capsule. In many ways, its central characters of Hannah, Jessa, Marnie and Shoshana are young Karens in the making – before we had a catch-all name for that kind of white woman. They might consider themselves to be upstanding, socially liberal young women, changing the fabric of society by their existence, but they are utterly entitled people who utilise their privilege for personal gain. The self-awareness that Dunham's script shows, in terms of other facets of these characters' awfulness, suggests there is a knowingness at work here but it nonetheless serves as a period snapshot of the unthinking clumsiness of white privilege and pervasive nature. Girls, like Sex and the City, is a genuinely fascinating portrait of a moment in time that will never exist again, says Blay. With the benefit of hindsight, there is also another question worth asking. Would it even have been a good idea for Dunham to write from a black or ethnic minority perspective? Some commentators think not. In retrospect, there's nothing worse than a white writer who tries to write black characters and doesn't have the range to truly understand them, says Blay. It always feels as if they're projecting their interpretations of race on them. Dunham writing Donald Glover into season two as her black Republican boyfriend and the accusations of being a ham-fisted attempt at diversity it caused is a good example. Looking back ten years later, it's hard not to wonder whether the conversation that erupted around the lack of diversity in girls has also had an important long-term consequence, putting diversity at the forefront of discussion on TV. The critique of the series' whiteness started a public conversation that continues to this day, one that has helped to carve out space for diverse storytelling, given the increase in shows that gave voice to non-white creators that followed. While girls shouldn't be credited for their success... The debate it prompted may have helped the likes of Issa Rae's Insecure and Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, Make It TV. Had the show been called White Girls, perhaps Dunham would have been able to control the narrative surrounding the show much sooner, and it's been intimated that these characters living extremely non-diverse lives in one of the world's most diverse cities was a deliberate way of making them seem dreadful. But, as show creator Jenny Connor stated, 
she was blindsided by the severity of the criticism. I knew the lack of diversity would be an issue, but I didn't think the criticism would be at the level it was, she told The Hollywood Reporter in 2017. All that the conversation about race would turn into a conversation about racism, added Dunham. To Dunham's credit, her perspective on race developed off-screen over the years, even if it did take multiple controversies and apology cycles to get there, and she appeared to mirror her changing outlooks on screen too. As the show reached its final season, there was a tone of self-awareness that had been missing in the show's earlier seasons. As Shoshana says in season six, when she abruptly breaks away from her friends, we cannot be in the same room without one of us making it completely and entirely about ourselves. It's just one of many moments of brilliance that girls was littered with. Take the polarizing, but... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Defining episode, One Man's Trash, in season two, where Hannah embarks on a weekend-long affair with a recently separated, older doctor, played by Patrick Wilson. Or the season six episode, American Bitch, which tackled sexual harassment. Time rightfully called the episode groundbreaking, adding, for better or worse, Girls is still like nothing else on television. And it's worth noting one sad consequence of the debate around the series' depiction of ethnicity. It will have robbed many potential viewers of the joy of Girls' best moments. It hasn't escaped Blay that loads of those who criticised the show never watched it, having been put off by the negativity surrounding it. It's a shame, she says, because there are seasons and episodes of that show that are truly brilliant. Ironically, in the end, Girls was overshadowed, off-screen, by the exact thing it was cleverly exploring. Self-centeredness. That was Groundbreaking Brilliance, or Offensive Display of White Privilege. The Furore Over Girls, 10 Years On, by Michelle Kambasha. Read by Tegan Byrne. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, Sienna Miller was one of the most sought-after celebrities of the early noughties. The actor and model became a style icon and an obsession for the frenzied tabloid circus that followed her every move. Almost 20 years on, she's grateful at how far things have come since then. Here, she speaks to Emma Brooks about her forthcoming Netflix drama, Anatomy of a Scandal, her own insecurities, and the feeling of empowerment that comes with standing up to the press. Read by Colleen Prendergast. 
In the late summer of 2005, Sienna Miller was appearing in the West End of London in a production of As You Like It. It is hard to remember how things were back then, how feverish the attention around young, female celebrities was, and how ferocious the tabloids were in pursuing them. Fresh from filming the remake of Alfie and dating her co-star Jude Law, Miller was both a style icon, the queen of boho chic, and the biggest tabloid target in Britain. As The Observer put it, an actress and model who has been traded like pork belly on the celebrity market. When, that summer, The Sun published a rumour that Miller was pregnant, her world exploded. She was 23, panicked, mortified, and obliged to stand on stage eight times a week before a capacity audience of 800 people. She was also, as The Sun had correctly reported, pregnant, less than 12 weeks. Looking back, she still boggles at the grotesqueness of it. Appearing in public when you're extremely heartbroken, trying not to break, all the while being mocked and ridiculed. The now 40-year-old smiles. Hell, honestly. This all happened a very long time ago. The reason we are talking about it on a Monday morning in Manhattan is that at the end of last year, Miller reached a settlement with The Sun. The newspaper agreed to pay the actor an undisclosed sum on the basis that there was no admission of illegal activity, and as part of the settlement, the judge allowed Miller to read out a prepared statement. In it, she expressed regret that she didn't have the resources to pursue the tabloid further, to a full trial, and restated her belief in its guilt. Miller alleges that the son obtained details of her pregnancy via illegal subterfuge, the so-called blagging of medical records from her doctor's office by pretending to be one of her reps. I wanted to expose the criminality that runs through the heart of this corporation, she read, standing outside the high court, flanked by her lawyers. A criminality demonstrated clearly and irrevocably by the evidence which I have seen. I wanted to share newsgroup secrets just as they have shared mine. We are downtown, in a cafe around the corner from where Miller lives with her ten-year-old daughter, Marlowe. She is in green mohair, slight and cheerful. If she appears a little nervous, it's probably because Miller has a habit of shooting her mouth off and regretting it afterwards. In 2007, she gave an interview to my colleague Simon Hattonston, in which she said, among other things, people do drugs because they're fun. A lot of people liked her for that, an honest answer in a context in which they are exceedingly rare. But it upset her mum, which she tries not to do. For much of her life, Miller has pinballed between impulse and correction. I sometimes wish I was more able to focus and strategize, she says, particularly in relation to her career. The fact is, however, if I'm happy, I'm happy. I'm an absolutely present, in-the-moment person, not much looking back or further forward. I've never known where I've wanted to be in ten years' time. There's no question that this guilelessness of Miller's, underscored by somewhat shaky self-esteem, added to the scorn with which she was treated. This month she can be seen playing against type in Anatomy of a Scandal, 
a six-part Netflix drama adapted from Sarah Vaughan's novel and directed by S.J. Clarkson, in which an English cabinet minister, played by Rupert Friend, is caught up in a hashtag me too type sex scandal. Miller plays Sophie, his wife, with Michelle Dockery as the barrister tasked with bringing him down. It's a loose take on Boris Johnson's old Bullingdon Club coterie and an enjoyable, bingeable romp. One of the makers is Big Little Lies and Ali McBeal creator David E. Kelly. This is his first show for Netflix, and the series has a lot in common with The Undoing, his highly stylized hit starring Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman. For Miller, the character seemed unattractive at first. I wasn't that excited about playing a kind of English Tory wife, she says. But the subject of betrayal interests her. She has Shakespearean-level experience of it, both from cheating boyfriends and endless gaslighting from the tabloids. I point out there's not a single appealing man in the entire thing. I know, they're all shit. Miller looks delighted. She thinks for another second. Yeah, no, they're all shit. She's rampantly feminist, S.J. Clarkson. She's great. The other noticeable thing about the show is the way it highlights how starkly the conversation around consent has moved on. The case, prosecuted by the character played by Dockery, Dockers to Miller, who had few scenes with her but is wildly admiring, she's genuinely a great person, hinges on whether a woman who has said yes can, a moment later, say no. Even ten years ago, this would have been a fantastical proposition on which to hang a fictional court case, and twenty years ago, when Miller was in her twenties, it wouldn't have been a discussion at all. God, no, she says. We grew up in such a different world. Miller's own character, Sophie, says at one point, it was just easier to acquiesce, to which Miller adds, as a teenager... Fuck, there's no way that you could say no, really. I mean, God forbid you offend a man's ego by rejecting him. Versus the generation ten years below us, no, they're happy to say it. It's very different. A language has evolved to enable this change, and Miller hoots with laughter when I ask if she used the word boundaries when she was younger. If someone had ever said to me, you need a boundary, I'd have said, what is a boundary? The same goes for gaslighting, she says, or love bombing or narcissistic tendencies. I realise I've been gaslit and love bombed several times. After her parents divorced when Miller was five, her father, an American banker and art dealer, stayed in New York and she returned with her sister and her English South African mother to London. At eight, she was sent to boarding school. It has been a feature of Miller's life that she has been serially underestimated and it started early. I was raised to be a people pleaser, she says. Her daughter, however, has no trouble saying no, which is great, says Miller, bar moments of arse-clenching embarrassment when she won't do what her mother asks her in public. As a child and a young adult, Miller was sunny and pretty and when she got into acting and modelling after school, a ready-made template was waiting for her. It's thanks, almost single-handedly to Miller, that many of us tried, in the early noughties, to carry off boot tassels, big scarves and floaty florals, 
a wardrobe that made her look pixie-like and whimsical and made the rest of us look like we got dressed in the dark. She hated the it girl tag. For a long time, my reputation was something to celebrate. It's just, it wasn't celebrating anything that I wanted to celebrate. People would come up to me and say, I love your clothes. I'd be like, ah, I'm trying to do Shakespeare. If this was the extent of her grievance, Miller, whom no one forced to pose for the cover of Vogue, wouldn't have much to complain about beyond basic misogynistic double standards. Jude Law, as pretty as Miller back then, had, I'm going out on a limb here, much less substance than his then-girlfriend, but in spite of appearing on magazine covers too, was taken very seriously indeed as an actor. Miller, on the other hand, was dismissed as an empty, talentless celebrity. But of course it went further than that. In her statement to the High Court, Miller said that she believes it was Rebecca Brooks, then editor of The Sun, who called Miller's publicist and told her she knew Miller was pregnant. Miller alleged that Brooks was one of those responsible for leaking the story. The story itself was not originally published in The Sun, but in Page Six, the notorious gossip column in the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch's US tabloid. The Sun followed up and published the story in the UK. For a split second, because I was in a mess, Miller wondered if one of her close friends had betrayed her. How else could the tabloid have found out about her pregnancy? But she didn't suspect her friends for long. I mean, there's no fucking way they could have known that from someone I knew. Literally, my three best friends were the only ones who knew. I realised pretty soon that the son was blagging medical records. How did she know? My doctor phoned and said, we sent the documents you asked for, and I said, I didn't ask for any documents. Wow, a real, the phone calls coming from inside the building moment. During the hearing last year, Miller's legal team presented evidence, including invoices issued to the son from an alleged medical blagger for Sienna Miller Pregnant Research, along with personal expenses that used references such as Sienna Miller Pregnancy Riddle and Dinner with Tracer, who confirmed Sienna was pregnant. It's obscene that a 23-year-old in the early stages of a pregnancy should have had these alleged actions taken against her. She did not ultimately continue with the pregnancy. Horrible, she says. The anxiety it induced. At the time, it removed any ability I had to think clearly about making a decision. I was in an absolute panic and already dealing with a huge amount of pain. She pauses. And then you think of, you know, the family of Millie Dowler, the murdered schoolgirl whose voicemails were targeted by the news of the world. And it's insignificant, but it was just so toxic. Those days, the frenzy of it, the madness of what women specifically were subjected to. I actually look back at it and it's like a weird film, another universe. Making her statement outside the High Court was a complicated moment for Miller. It didn't feel like a victory. When you hear there's been an out-of-court settlement, of course, it's an astounding amount of money, but it's nothing near what you imagine. I don't tell people the actual figure, as I'm not allowed to say, but it's a drop in the ocean. I mean, they won, essentially. 
The reason Miller was able to go after the sun in the first place was because she didn't settle with the news of the world during the first phone hacking scandal. When that story broke, she knew she was one of those who had been hacked. I knew it, and I was being told that I was not one of them. I had to take the police to court to even find out I was a victim, which is indicative of how deeply it all runs in terms of this democracy we're living in. She sued the police to hand over evidence that she was a victim of phone hacking, and the judge ordered them to comply. I got four boxes of evidence. But in the end, there's very little you can do with it. You're going up against a Goliath. Airing all this is fine, she says, but I thought it would have more of an impact than it did. What struck her most about the evidence was how removed reporters at The Sun were from the implications of what they were doing. It was gamification, effectively, and she was considered fair game. I heard a lot at the time. You wanted it. You asked for it. Well, no. No one can prepare you for what that experience is. It was like big game hunting. It's so vicious. And then reading through the emails of the correspondents and journalists in court. Look what she's done now, silly little twat, that kind of thing. Banter between grown-ups. There's a weak link in human psychology, which is the part that makes us slow down on a motorway and look at an accident. That's what tabloids exploit. She doesn't blame individual sun journalists particularly. It was a collegial environment where that's what they were doing and it was probably exciting. And I understand if you just detach from the fact that there's a human being at the other end of it, you can get sucked into a way of behaving that you are really not proud of ultimately. And I think that a lot of people look back on it and probably feel pretty disgusted at what they did. Newsgroup, which owns The Sun, has always denied that illegal activity took place at the News of the World's sister daily during the era when Rebecca Brooks was editor of the tabloid, including the blagging of medical records. Though it has made substantial payouts to celebrities who have accused it of phone hacking, including Paul Gascoigne. How did her parents react when all this was going down? Ugh, it was brutal. Actually, mum's got a claim against the son. It's starting to be worth it because of all the people around me who were hacked and are going to get a settlement. That's made it worthwhile, once you add up what everybody else is getting. Wait, what? Mum and my best friend. The web was extremely large. It was agony because it was out of everybody's control. They were watching me somewhat implode. They set the stage for people to unravel and then documented it. Young women, Amy Winehouse, Britney Spears. When I asked a Sun spokesperson if it had any comment on the allegation that it targeted Miller's mum and her friend, they said no. It's because of all this that Miller is very nervous about phones. Marlowe doesn't have one. I've told her she's never getting one. She can have a flip phone when she's 12. All she wants to do is go to a friend's house and learn TikTok dances. It is with oblique amusement that one notes that, after the son's pregnancy story exploded, the first movie Miller made was Factory Girl, a biopic of Edie Sedgwick produced by Harvey Weinstein.
Ah, to be a young woman in Hollywood in the early 21st century. Actually, says Miller, Weinstein never tried to assault her, partly, she thinks, because I was Jude's girlfriend, and there was probably protection in that. Jude was a big actor for Harvey. And partly, she says, because I called Harvey Pops from day one, which I'm sure helped. You're not going to wank on that. The former movie mogul and convicted sex offender currently serving a 23-year prison sentence did, however, shout at her. I was rehearsing one day with Steve Buscemi, and Harvey called and asked me to come to his office. I said, I'm in rehearsal, and he shouted, now, and sent a car. He sat me down in his office and said, you're not fucking going out anymore, you're not partying, rah, rah, rah. This was a period during which Miller was out every night, appearing in gossip columns. I was having a lot of fun, but I managed to go to work on time, and he was standing over me while I was sitting in a chair, lip quivering, and then he slammed the door and I burst into tears. And then he came back in and said, It's because I'm fucking proud of you, and slammed the door again. It sounds abusive, but at the time, says Miller, it felt like an honour. You weren't really inaugurated until Weinstein made you cry. I imagined this is what Hollywood producers were like. I genuinely felt he'd given me the biggest validation. I was so grateful. I wasn't scared of him, actually, and I was not aware that he was raping people. He asked for one meeting with me in a hotel, and I brought the other producers, and it was innocuous. I've never been propositioned by anyone for a job. Her biggest problem, beyond the behaviour of the tabloids, has been her own confidence. Miller has appeared in more than 30 movies, turned in excellent performances in films such as Foxcatcher and American Woman, and appeared on stage as Sally Bowles in a 2015 Broadway revival of Cabaret. But, she says, I don't have rock-solid self-esteem. I wish I did. Learning to ask for equal pay has been hard, although she was pleased recently when she walked away from a theatre project rather than accept less money than her male co-star. More generally, though, advocating for myself in that way is not who I am. I don't see myself as valuable. I'm just grateful to be there. I'm trying very hard not to think this way, to switch my mindset into a place where I can say no. I try, and I can't. Because ultimately, deep down, I am really happy to be there and would probably pay to be there. She'll tell a joke against herself before anyone else can get there. I do it endlessly and I have to stop. Is she ambitious? No. I mean, I must have some ambition. I have had this conversation with my English agent who thinks I do have ambition but I know that reaching some kind of apex of success in this industry is not the thing that would make me happy. Other conventional measures of success have never interested her either. She notes with interest that Sophie, her character in Anatomy of a Scandal, is someone with an agenda. To marry the best man, to be the wife, to have the kids, to set up the perfect world, to live out that fantasy, and it all implodes – that's so far away from my ambitions when I was younger. 
Miller, who is single, separated from Tom Sturridge, the actor with whom she had Marlowe, in 2015, but he is very present in their lives. His mother, the actor Phoebe Nichols, who in fact appears in Anatomy of a Scandal as Sophie's mother-in-law, is visiting Miller at present, and at one point walks past the cafe where we sit, though she doesn't spot us. During the first lockdown in 2020, Miller moved upstate into a house with Marlowe, Tom, her best friend Tara, and, briefly, her dad. It was communal living, which I love, although by the end we were ready for it to end, but Marlowe was really happy. I look back on the start of that lockdown quite fondly. Miller sometimes wonders and worries if she talks and thinks too much about what happened to her at the hands of the Sun and its sister papers during those days of her early twenties, and she tries to recalibrate. It was at the same time as really falling in love and having magical times. I look back on that decade with mostly fond memories. I can really dissociate my life from that person, put it in a box where it feels like somebody else. But a moment later, she rebels against this impulse. It was such an enormous part of my life, and it's still being bashed out. Regarding the statement outside the High Court, in which she publicly accused Rupert Murdoch's company of doing her harm, was a moment of terror and empowerment. To be able to acknowledge the truth. That was... Sienna Miller on Surviving the Tabloids. It was like big game hunting, so vicious. By Emma Brox. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Finally, from the late 90s up until the 2010s, US fashion outlet Abercrombie & Fitch cultivated a brand that was unashamedly all-American, which they deemed preppy cool. The label thrived, but it was built on a culture of elitism and exclusion. In light of new Netflix documentary, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie & Fitch, Adrian Horton explores exactly how Abercrombie & Fitch fell out of fashion. Read by Tegan Byrne. If you're a millennial or have parented one, you know the look. Advertisements with shirtless men, sculpted abs above low-cut jeans a melange of thin and tan and young white bodies in minimal clothing. A store at the mall mostly obscured by heavy wooden blinders, music pulsing from within. Faded jeans and polo shirts in middle and high school, all featuring the ubiquitous moose. White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, a new Netflix documentary on the ubiquity of a once zeitgeisty brand, Limited Vision of Cool and its culture of discrimination is easy catnip for adults re-evaluating the influences of their youth. The brand of barely-there denim miniskirts and graphic t-shirts was part of the landscape of what I thought it meant to be a young person, the film's director, Alison Clayman, told The Guardian. Clayman, a millennial, grew up in Philadelphia. That's true for many US adolescents in the late 90s through the 2000s, as Abercrombie stores anchored most mainstream malls across America, including my hometown middle school hangout in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. Anytime Abercrombie comes up in conversation, you immediately cut right to stories about people's identity formation, said Clayman. How much money you could or could not spend on clothing, body insecurities, memory imprints from hangouts at the mall, 
the overpowering smell of its cologne, fierce, liberally applied to every surface. The messages one received on what was cool, on whose bodies met the right standards and whose did not. As White Hot traces through a succinct and wide-ranging survey of the brand's evolution and sales tactics, Abercrombie & Fitch, a company hinged on a vision of preppy cool, kept those messages pretty overt. To quote former CEO Mike Jeffries, who oversaw the brand's precipitous rise in the late 90s and 2000s, in a now infamous interview from 2006, We go after the cool kids. We go after the attractive, all-American kid with a great attitude and a lot of friends. A lot of people don't belong in our clothes, and they can't belong. Are we exclusionary? Absolutely. Translation. A brand that was white-hot not only in a financial sense, during a period of cultural ubiquity at the turn of the millennium, but also one that promoted, internally and externally, an exclusively white vision of beauty and style. That all-American is doing a lot. The brand also famously refused to carry plus sizes for years, until after Jeffries departed in 2014. As White Hot recounts through first-person interviews with several former staff members and cultural academics, this is a brand that once sold graphic tees branded with a racist depiction of Asian people and the words, two Wongs can make it white. The brand that, in corporate materials, banned store staff from having dreadlocks, that ranked employees on appearance and skin tone, faced a class-action racial discrimination case in the early 2000s and argued before the Supreme Court in 2015 that it was legal to deny employment to a woman with a headscarf because the religious garment violated its look policy. The company lost in an 8-1 ruling. The 88-minute film offers its fair share of nostalgia bait. The opening sequence plays alongside Lit My Own Worst Enemy, and the signature scent is subject to plenty of good-natured ribbing, but focuses on taking scalpel to the company's finely tuned, if now stale, image. We wanted to focus on the everyday people who were affected by this company, said Clayman. Taking a more objective look at Abercrombie offered the opportunity to examine abstract forces that impact us in life, things like beauty standards or structural racism, and peek behind the curtains to see exactly how this was a top-down system that relied on existing biases. That system, the film explains, was both a reflection of American culture and executed under the exacting watch of Jeffries, who took over as CEO in the early 1990s. The Abercrombie and Fitch name was established, as the shirts often boasted, in 1893 as an elite sportsman's store. Think a Teddy Roosevelt-esque gentleman hunter. It became the famous Moose Polo version after retail magnate and Jeffrey Epstein financier Les Wexner purchased it, moved its headquarters to Columbus, Ohio and handed the reins to Jeffries. It was Jeffries, a mercurial and reclusive figure who declined to participate in the film, who masterminded Abercrombie's transformation into a clothing brand that united Calvin Klein Sexy and Ralph Lauren Americana sold at aspirational but accessible prices, marketed primarily to adolescents. Jeffries was, by numerous accounts from former corporate employees in the film, demanding, obsessed with youth and a micromanager who emphasised appearance, as in thinness, whiteness and Eurocentric features, at the company's stores. In 2003, under Jeffries, 
the company faced a class-action racial discrimination lawsuit from California, which alleged that the company turned down minorities for sales positions, relegated them to stockrooms and had their hours reduced when managers heard their looks weren't Abercrombie enough. Three of the class-action plaintiffs testify to such discrimination and its emotional damage in the film. The company settled the lawsuit for $50 million without admitting wrongdoing. As part of the deal, Abercrombie and Fitch was subject to a consent decree and required to hire a diversity officer, Todd Corley, who appears in the film but differs from revealing his full opinions on the brand's controversies. As Whitehot explains, the consent decree had no enforcement mechanism and though representation increased behind the scenes, the brand's exclusionary vision under Jeffries continued. Discrimination was their brand says Benjamin O'Keefe, who started a viral petition to boycott the brand in 2013 until they made their clothing for teens of all sizes. They rooted themselves in discrimination at every single level. Jeffrey certainly meets the eccentric bad CEO criteria now popular in TV shows, from We Crashed to The Dropout to Super Pumped and its depictions of millennial hustle culture. Abercrombie was definitely doing work hard, play hard, said Clayman. But as titillating as it can be to focus on his oddities, his comically exaggerated plastic surgeries, for example, such focus can end up being exculpatory, said Clayman. It kind of lets all of us, the collective, off the hook, not to mention the entire company that was facilitating this exclusionary vision for decades. It's really convenient to put all of the sins on Mike Jeffries and that era because he was so closely associated with the company's rebirth in the 90s and early aughts, she said, and he definitely deserves real criticism, but it takes more than one guy to do what A&F did. Since Jeffries left in 2014, the company has changed tack. Under CEO Fran Horowitz, appointed in 2017, the company's sales have rebounded from its mid-2010s nadir and a rebrand of its image to one of inclusivity, one more in line with the politics of Gen Z. We run a company very focused on diversity and inclusion, Horowitz has said. The company has developed a cult following for its curve love jeans in a range of sizes. Their marketing now puts them in line with what good business looks like today, said Clayman. But it's important to talk about it holistically, and I don't know how much they've truly reckoned with their past. That reckoning, the film ultimately argues, goes beyond a corporate rebrand. The brand was not so much exceptional as illustrative. It was not the pioneer of exclusivity nor whiteness, but, for a time, one of the best at profiting on it. Which, to be fair is pretty classically all-American. That was Discrimination Was Their Brand. How Abercrombie & Fitch Fell Out of Fashion by Adrian Horton. Read by Tegan Byrne. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and Tegan Byrne and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by George Cooper. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. 
Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.